So if you take a big bong hit, you get a big spike of THC, which is the main substance in cannabis that gets us stoned, that goes away very quickly. A lot of our test research subjects tell us, oh, I'll have a couple of beers, then I'll smoke a joint, and then I'll drive. And it's that combination of alcohol plus marijuana that is particularly dangerous. Welcome to More Life. In this episode, Hartford HealthCare's Steve Coates talks with Dr. Godfrey Perlson, director of Olin Neuropsychiatry Research Center, which is part of the Hartford HealthCare Institute of Living. Dr. Perlson is also the author of Weed Science, Cannabis Controversies and Challenges, which takes a deep dive into what we really know about marijuana. Steve and Dr. Perlson discuss the recent legalization of recreational cannabis in the state of Connecticut. What do we stand to gain in the form of recreation and revenue? Or what do we stand to lose in respect to potential recreational risk? Here's Steve Coates. Doctor, I'll start you with two questions. Were you surprised by the legalization of marijuana in the land of steady habits here in Connecticut? And why the passion on the pro side for all of these decades? So uh, I wasn't totally surprised that Connecticut chose in 2021 to legalize recreational marijuana because it had already been medicinal cannabis had been previously legalized in 2012. And in, in Connecticut, as in the rest of the United States, there's a general sentiment for legalization of recreational cannabis. More, more people support recreational cannabis legalization than support gay marriage. So the, the tide has really turned the 60s and the 70s, where Richard Nixon was pushing cannabis as a dangerous drug corrupting our youth um, to something that's much more benign. I think the perception of the risks of the drug have changed more than anything else. And that's true in Connecticut as much as anywhere else. The governor has been, I think, in favor of legalizing recreational cannabis for a while and thought about it very carefully. And the, the reasons for that are mixed. One is following popular sentiment, so the voters will. But the, the other is that it brings money into states. It's an opportunity to boost their revenues. Um, and states are always very happy to do that. So if, if you look at it as a sort of sin tax, like the ones on gambling, for example. It's just another way of bringing more revenue into the state. So it's not surprising Connecticut wanted to do this. What about people who have said for years, we've heard it for years, that marijuana is a gateway drug to harder drugs? Do you think that's true? There's very little truth to that idea that marijuana is a gateway drug to harder drugs. Um, There's more evidence that tobacco is. For, for example, and the, the old joke is that if marijuana is a gateway to anything, it's a gateway to your refrigerator because of the munchies. So what is kind of the history of why marijuana has been outlawed? A, a lot of it turns out to be overtly political. Now, now that we can examine records from back then, the idea that in the African-American community, you could jail black nationalists and people, black power advocates for use of opioids, and that you could jail hippies who were protesting against the Vietnam War for using cannabis. So although objective reports at the time said that cannabis was a relatively harmless drug, 
and uh, that legalization of recreational cannabis should be considered. Richard Nixon had another agenda that was more overtly political and um, set in motion uh, mechanisms that later had cannabis classified as a Schedule One substance, that it had a high potential for addiction and no known medical utility. And it's remained there. So cannabis is still on that, seen as a Schedule One substance, despite the fact that it now has more easily demonstrated medical uses, which is the states without risk. And if, if, if we want to get into that. Please. Okay, sure. Well, well all, all recreational drugs have benefits and risks, e- even caffeine. It's just how risky are they? British researcher called David Nutt has actually come up with numbers in terms of how dangerous drugs are. Uh, if you take into account of how habit-forming they are, what people do when they're intoxicated, like alcohol is associated more with spousal battering and getting into fights and severe drunk driving problems, uh, but it, it also has social benefits. And if you rank marijuana on that sort of harms scale, it, it comes off as relatively benign. But uh, all, all recreational drugs are somewhere on that scale, even caffeine. Caffeine's pretty benign, but if uh, for, for some patients with migraines, it can be a trigger. For some people who are very heavy caffeine drinkers, if they quit, suddenly they can get withdrawal symptoms of headaches and insomnia and so on. So um, all drugs come with a cost, and that, that's something that Connecticut had to consider, risk minimization. So it seems obvious that as we look at the impacts of legalization, we need to look at the harm the potential harm, and the benefits of the drug. Which is part of the reason that my lab is, is studying harms um, as, as well as benefits. So we're, we're looking at both sides of this. We're looking at cannabidiol, CBD, as a potential treatment for some patients with psychotic illnesses. But we're also looking at stoned drivers and exactly to what extent driving is impaired by recent use of cannabis, smoked cannabis, how long that lasts for, and how to detect it at the roadside. We like to think we're looking at both potential harms and potential benefits. So for impaired driving, it's not like alcohol. We don't have 0.08. How can they measure if somebody's impaired when they're using marijuana? I guess the brief answer to that is right now they're not able to. Precisely as you've intimated, alcohol and cannabis are very different substances. So alcohol is really water-soluble, which is why we can make cocktails. And it distributes in the, in the body really quickly through because most of our bodies are made of water. So the amount of alcohol in your breath and in your blood and in your brain are all pretty much the same. And the amount in your brain measured through alcohol in your breath in a breathalyzer equates to behavioral impairment. And the number of drinks you have determines how high your blood alcohol content is. And it, that level comes down in a very, very predictable way. So all, all that's really simple. But with cannabis, it's really complicated. So it's very fat soluble. So if you take a big bong hit, you get a big spike of THC, which is the main substance in cannabis that gets us stoned, um, that goes away very quickly because all of the THC in your blood is rapidly sucked into fatty tissues, including the brain. And um, because it's not water-soluble, you can't really have, no one has come up with yet, uh, a reliable breath test. The amount of THC in your breath is minimal. 
and the, the level in the blood settles down to a, a low, steady level. And th that level is maintained up to several weeks after you've uh, smoked a joint. So testing people for THC in the blood, as is done in some states to determine if a driver is intoxicated on cannabis, would be the equivalent of one of the two of us going into a bar, drinking a six-pack, and then being tested two weeks later. And someone says, oh, we can find alcohol in your blood, therefore your driving's impaired. It's the, the impairment and the detection of THC are really divorced one from the other. So th th those are some of the reasons. The, the other thing is that the kinds of behaviors that are impaired by cannabis are really different than the behaviors that are impaired by alcohol. So if you use alcohol drunk driving screening tests at the roadside, you're not going to pick up marijuana impaired drivers. You need very specific tasks. And we're trying to develop them. So we've come up with a few that seem to work when taken together. And this is work we're doing with the National Highway and Traffic Safety Administration. So we've come up with a sort of fingerprint of marijuana impaired drivers. And um, we want to test that on a much larger scale to see how well it works. I guess the simple message then is if you're smoking weed, don't get behind the wheel. Yes. That's that's part of the message. D don't get behind the wheel at least for five hours, we would say, based on how long impairment lasts. And also to know that at least there's some evidence that alcohol plus marijuana, um, the combination is synergistic in terms of impairment. So it's not just A plus B. It's A plus B plus even more. So that a, a lot of our test research subjects tell us, oh, I'll have a couple of beers, then I'll smoke a joint, and then I'll drive. And it's that combination of alcohol plus marijuana that at least there's some evidence is particularly dangerous. That e even if you have amounts of each that are insufficient in themselves to really impair driving, the combination will impair driving. What's less known is um, residual impairment. So if, if you go on a bender and drink a lot of alcohol, come into work hungover, what's, what's the marijuana equivalent of that? And how impairing is that? If you're a neurosurgeon and you smoke a joint on Saturday, can you be performing like removing a brain tumor on Monday? No one's really studied those sorts of questions. What about testing for marijuana at work? Now that it's legal in Connecticut, can employers crack down if, if people are tested and they're found to have marijuana in, in their bloodstream? Yeah, that's a great question. So the um, the legalization of um, that just occurred in 2021 of recreational uh, cannabis in Connecticut left that question open. So um, employers are still entitled, if they wish, to set their own rules in terms of cannabis testing. We've heard about the wonders of the drug on the medical side of things for cancer patients, for Crohn's disease patients. What are we doing now as far as research goes to make sure we're maximizing the usage and also find new ways that we can help people who are suffering from pain? So um, really what you need to do for testing medical marijuana, which is the same substance as recreational marijuana, just used in a different context, is you need blinded clinical trials where the person giving out the drug doesn't know what's been given. Is it cannabis or a placebo? And the person receiving it doesn't know if they're getting active drug or placebo. And you look not just for patient self-reports of pain, 
which are inherently subjective. But really, for patients, say, who have chronic pain, you want to know, well, since they started using marijuana, were they able to return to work? Or since they started using marijuana for pain control, did they cut back on their use of opioids if they were using opioids? So rather than just saying, I like the drug, it made me feel better, I don't care as much about the pain, you, you want to look for objective consequences of using the drug. Does that translate into pain reduction in terms of things you can actually measure? So when patients have done that, the, the results are somewhat ambiguous. Uh, mm-hmm. Results in multiple sclerosis patients who often have painful muscle spasms, use of cannabis or THC seems to be helpful under those circumstances. Uh, for chronic neuropathic pain, such as you see in type 2 diabetes, where you get nerve damage due to the diabetic process and painful peripheral neuropathies, those seem responsive uh, to THC. Other forms of pain, much less so. Doctor, before we go, you are an international expert, so I have to ask you, where did the name pot come for marijuana? You know, I, <laughs> I, I don't know the answer to that. People have asked me that before, and uh, I, I really don't know. If you, if you look up nicknames for marijuana, you'll find something like a couple of hundred, and some of them like pot, and others like muggles that was used in the 1920s it's, are totally obscure in, in, in terms of uh, where the nickname comes from. I had to ask. I didn't really want to Google that from my work computer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, someone's watching that. Hey, doctor, thanks for your time. You're more than welcome. Thank you, Steve Coates and Dr. Godfrey Perlson. For more information about research at Olin, go to nrc-iol.org. To learn more about weed science, go to godfreyperlson.com and check this episode's notes for the links. For Hartford HealthCare, I'm Enronda Pierre. Thanks for listening to More Life. I'm ready for my close-up. All the faces start to light up. You know I love this feeling. I got more life in my life. If you feel it, then you know. We can go anywhere we want to go. You're going to love this feeling. We got more life in our life. Oh, I won't stop going. No sign of slowing. Now I know it. life.